I first uh, started preaching here at Northview, it was about 13 and a half years ago, I was hired as the young adults pastor, and uh, we used to have these pink pews. Does anybody remember the pink pews? Yeah, a few of you. Uh, blonde wood, pink pews, very 1994, it was great. Um, in the front of the church, there was a guy who, who attended from time to time. He was, uh, it was on Saturday nights only. He came for the meal and then would come to the service, but he would only stay in the service for, for a few minutes. Uh, he did this a few occasions, but I, I always remember him because he would lay on the front pew. He would just absolutely lay there, and when we were singing, he would put, raise his hand and do this. <laughs> Didn't matter what the song was, he was just doing this. Anyway, even after the, the songs were done, he would be laying on the front waving his hand, and uh, then I'd come up and I'd start preaching. I'd get about a minute into it, and he'd stop waving, he'd get up, and he'd walk down the main aisle here at Downs Road, and he um, would say out loud, boring. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't even give me a chance. I mean, it was a good minute into it, and... Uh, he was a nice enough guy. He, I mean, he had some, some um, mental health challenges, of course. He came out to me in the hallway at one point after a service on Saturday, and he, he came up to me and he said, I have a, I have a word of, from the Lord for you. So, you know, when somebody says that to me, I'm usually like, oh, okay, so lay it on me. He told me about some things that he, he believed were going to happen. He told me about his ability to do some rem remarkably miraculous things, and um, in the end, uh, he, he, he stopped, and he said, do you understand? And he'd asked me to do some, some things, and I said, well, I'll, I'll think about all that. I mean, I'll consider it all. And as soon as the words came out of my mouth, he jumped right in my face and said, consider it, you'll do it. I'm speaking for the Lord your God. Okay, how would you respond when somebody says that? That I'm a prophet of the living God. Well, the way that I wished I would have responded, <laughs> I didn't. I said, oh, okay, and went back to the office. But in my mind, I was thinking, yeah, okay, but we'll see, right? I mean, you, you, talk is cheap. Um, if it happens, if the stuff that you just said happens, if what you say actually takes place, I'll consider that what you're... If the miracles that you claim that you did, that there's, it's verifiable and I can see them take place, and I'm, you've got my attention. He talked about how he could raise a child from the dead, and I said, well, if, if I actually see that happen, it'll be hard for me to argue against you. This, this story that we're in um, about Elisha, prophet of the living God, is really uh, a story where Elisha is, is giving his resume, or the author of 2 Kings is giving his resume. Um, he has taken the place of Elijah. Elijah was a great man of God, who God through whom God did amazing things. And then you've got Elisha coming on his heels. And so there's a lot of people around who are wondering whether Elisha is the real deal or not. I mean, he goes into a town of Jericho at one point, and the bunch of boys are yelling at, yelling at him, get out of here, baldy. You know, so there's not a lot of people who are buying into the idea here. This passage and the passages that preceded are basically the author saying he, he's the real deal. He does some amazing things. God uses him in some remarkable ways. And in this passage is really kind of the crown in, in, or the jewel in the crown. 
It's, it's the chief part of his resume, and it's, it, he actually does raise a child from the dead. So I want to I look at this passage with you. I want to tell you the story first, okay? And then after I tell you the story, I want to give you just three quick applications from what we read and study, all right? You'll, you'll enjoy the story, I think. It's, it's remarkable. So let's start. 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 8. One day, Elisha went to Shunem. And a well-to-do woman was there who urged him to stay for a meal. So whenever he came by, he stopped there to eat. She said to her husband, I know that, th- that this man who often comes our way is a holy man of God. So let's make a small room on the roof and put, it, put in it a bed and table, a chair and a lamp for him, and then he can stay there whenever he comes to us. Let's pause there. There's a few things that I need to explain to you, just some of the background. Uh, the author is setting the stage for what's going to take place, and he mentions a few things that we need to dig a little deeper into. Uh, first, Shunem, this town, is halfway between Carmel and the, and the Jordan River Valley. Carmel's on the coast. That's where Elisha lives. The Jordan River Valley is where he's done a lot of his ministry. It's a two-day hike, ride, to get from Carmel to the Jordan River Valley, and right in the middle is Merit, right? Or Shunem. It's the place where everybody stops on their way. The problem, of course, in those days is there wasn't a Dairy Queen you could stop to and get something to eat. There wasn't, you know, the Subway and the Starbucks and whatever else is in Merit there. There were just people in the town of Shunem who had to show hospitality to you, and that's what this woman does to to Elisha. Come to my house and eat, because she believes that he's as he says, the man, the man of God. She's called a well-to-do woman. That's probably pretty accurate. Uh, you have to be relatively wealthy to be what we call a patron of others. You have to be hospitable to other people. I mean, you, uh, not everybody has enough money to buy extra food for extra people around. So in these days, she had enough money to do this. In fact, she has enough money to build a permanent structure on the top of their roof for Elisha. Uh, people don't usually, you know, just in, in a moment say, hey, we're going to add a room. Even you and I don't do that right? Hey, my friend's coming over. Let's just build another room. But she could, and her husband could. Um, he, he is a farmer, we learn, learn a little bit later, and uh, so they own a lot of property. So it's probably pretty accurate that she, she is on the higher echelon of the socioeconomic spectrum. She calls him the holy man of God, as I said. Uh, the actual Hebrew, which is the original language that this was written in, the actual Hebrew reading of that is, she trembled with fear for him. She trembled with fear for him. Like, so, so the little boys earlier in the story about Elisha called him Baldy. This lady is the opposite. She buys into the idea that God is working specially through Elisha. And she wants to be on his side. She wants to be on the side of the living God who is working in this guy. She's fully full of faith when it comes to him. She builds a room on the roof, as I said. Um, that might sound weird to us because our roofs are peaked in those days, all the roofs were flat. I don't know if you've ever been to somewhere like San Diego, warm climate, and there's always a rooftop patio. Um, that's kind of what it was like in those days. If you wanted to have extra space in your house, uh, people didn't usually have yards. The cities were squished together. So if you wanted a place to kind of just relax, sunshine, you go up on your roof. Do you remember the story about Jesus where he's healing some people and uh, four friends take their, 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 their buddy who can't walk and they dig through the roof? They go up on the roof and they dig through the roof? It's because it's flat. They can do that. David is walking on the roof of the palace when he sees Bathsheba. 
So the roofs there are flat. Elisha ends up getting his own spot. It's got a little table in it. It's got a bed, a little lamp. One day, verse 11, when Elisha came, he went up to his room and he lay down there. And he said to his servant Gehazi, call the Shunammite, call the, call the woman. So he called her and she stood before him. And Elisha said to him, tell her, you've got all this trouble for us. Now, what can I do for you? Can we speak on, behalf, on your behalf to the king or the commander of the army? Like I know some important people. Surely you've got a need, right? And he did know some important people. You go to 2 Kings chapter 3, just the chapter immediately preceding this. Elisha it becomes the guy that the kings of Israel and Judah come to for help. They, they need to know if their battle plans are going to work against Moab. And he assures them that they will. They go into battle. They win the battle. So we presume that he's done them a pretty big favor. The most powerful people in the nation owe him. So he says to this this woman, hey, I, I know a guy. <laughs> so tell me, do you have any problems with your taxes? Do you, you know, do you need to get, you, you know, your, your, your house? You need to allow the, the city to permit your house? What, what do you need? She replied, I have a home among my own people. In other words, I, I got it, right? My, I got a husband, I got my own people. Don't worry about it. We're well off. Verse 14, well, what can be done for her, Elisha asked. And Gehazi, his servant, he said, well, she has no son, and her husband is old. And then Elisha said, okay, call her. So he called her, and she stood in the doorway. About this time next year, Elisha said, you will hold a son in your arms. No, my lord. She objected, please, man of God, don't mislead your servant. If you've been around here, at all, uh, you'll know that um, part of the background to much of what's written in the Bible is the need for women in that culture to provide for their husbands a son. Children generally, yes, but a son in particular. You needed, you needed to have a man, whether a husband or a son, some man needed to take you in. He needed to provide for you because women weren't allowed to go out and work. You needed someone to take care of the property, and ultimately you wanted your name, your lineage to last through the land, and that's only happened through the boys. So here's this woman, and she's got a problem. She didn't, she didn't express that she had a problem, but she's got an underlying problem. The underlying problem is that her husband's old, and she doesn't have a son. These are the kinds of things, ladies, that you pray about in those days. Like if you would walked up to the Shunammite woman five years prior to this and said, is there something I can pray for you about? She would say quietly, I can't get pregnant. We're at great risk. So I need, we need a boy. So please plead with God along with me to provide for that. Can you imagine every month that this woman does this. And every month, hope, 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 disappointment. Okay, maybe next month, hope, 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 please, 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 for disappointment. Please, 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 disappointment. After a while, I mean, seriously, after like 10 years, 15, 20 years of this, don't you eventually say, I'm, I'm just tired. And you settle in your mind that maybe this is just your lot. You, you will face the public 
condemning, and that's what they got in those days. You were, you were seen as being a failure as a woman because you weren't able to provide a son for your husband. I'll deal with the public condemning. I'll deal with all the problems that this brings about. I just don't want to think about it or, anymore. So when Elisha comes along and he calls her into the room and he says to her, right, next time this year, one year ago from now, I'm sorry, one year in the future from now, you will have a baby and you'll be holding your son in your arms. Most of us would be like, oh, that's amazing. But she doesn't say that. She says, no. Do not drag me back into that because I've wanted it for so long and it's never come. Do not raise my hopes up. Just don't do it. That's why I didn't ask you about it before. That's why I said I I don't have any needs, because I don't. Just leave it alone, Elijah. But she was wrong. (laughs) Verse 17, the woman became pregnant. And the next year, about that same time, she gave birth to a son just as Elisha had told her. And the child grew, and one day he went out to his father, who was with the reapers, and he said to his father, my head, my head. All right, so there's about like 12 years of time covered in those two verses. My, uh, my youngest child, my, my little girl, Sophie Grace is her name. Uh, her birth was a bit of a miracle to, for, for me and my wife, um, Jeannie had a a miscarriage prior to our first child and then had a miscarriage again after our two children. And that second miscarriage um, was at about 12 to 15 weeks. And so it was quite quite an issue. (laughs) I remember my wife laying on the bed in in New Zealand saying, I just want to go home. And so that's part of the reason why we ended up coming back here. She just wanted to be around her family because of the kind of heartache she was experiencing about this. We, listen, we wanted to have lots of kids. I wanted like 10, and she, she wanted fewer, <laughs> right? Um, love kids. So anyway, um, we, we went to the doctors here in, in, in Abbotsford, uh, saw the specialists, did all the tests, sat down across from this South African specialist who frowned at us and said, I'm sorry to have to tell you this, but it's basically going to be impossible for you to have a, another baby. And just none of this looks right. So just focus on the two kids you have and just be happy there. Be thankful that you have the two children because it was kind of odd that you had them to begin with. So, so it's good. So we walked out of there kind of sad, but also had gotten to the point where, all right, well, I guess that's the case. A few months later, though, uh, I came home from work, and my wife was standing at the top of the stairs with a little smile on her face and, and, and a little, some, something that looked like a pen in her hand. And I said, what? And she said, just come here. What? Just come here. Fine. So I trudged up the stairs, and she said, here. And she handed me the little you know, pregnancy thing that has a, it had a line, a pink line in it. And I was like, what does that mean? And she said, we're, we're pregnant. No way! You know, like just amazed hugs and tears and excitement. It was about four, five, six weeks later that I came home again, and I sat down on the couch, and she gave me a little gift, and I opened it all up, and inside was just a piece of paper. On the paper was written, roses are red, violets are pink, and that's a color you better get used to. (laughs) And my mind went crazy. Oh, my goodness, a girl. 
Oh dear, I had two boys. I, know, I get boys, I understand that. But girls, I had two sisters growing up. I was happy I'd avoided it to that point. But I was, okay, okay, this is gonna be amazing, okay. Remember having Sophie in the hospital and holding her in my, my hands, you know, big eyelashes looked very different than the boys. You know, the boys, you have them, you're like, all right, good, you know, they're saying, stop. <laughs> Don't do that yet, Jeff, but with the girl, you're like, okay, lay her down, she's quiet. She looked at me with those eyes, and I fell right in love in that moment. Sophie, grace. Sophie means wisdom. In God's wisdom, he showed us grace. You know, when you you can't have children, and then you have one, there is something remarkable that happens inside of you. A joy that I can't express to you. A thankfulness to God that it's hard for me to express to you. So this woman, she has this baby. Against all odds, Elisha's words come to fruition. Can you imagine holding that baby in her arms? Father holding the baby in his arms, just overwhelmed with joy. We were not supposed to have, for years we've prayed, and finally this little one is here. And you can imagine, you know, her, her nursing the child and connecting with the child and then tickling the child, just like you and I do, and giggle, 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 and, you know, wrestling, the father wrestling with the little boy and holding their hand, you know, around the little town. And eventually the boy gets old enough, you know, 10 years on, the boy gets old enough that he goes and helps dad in the field. They're doing their harvest, it's a great joyful time of the year. This is what they do all their work for. They're reaping. The boy's with dad, and then, then he's not. The father somehow looks around, and he hears his son moaning over in, over in the tall wheat that they haven't cut yet, and he goes over to him, and his son has just got his hands on his head. And he's in my head, in my head. So his father told a servant, carry him to his mother. In verse 20, after the servant had lifted him up and carried him to his mother, the boy sat on her lap until noon. Then he died. I was in Orlando this last week with uh, a conference. Big church. Sunny and warm in Orlando, and so between the sessions, I would walk out. I walked outside several times. Right at the front entrance of the church, they had a memorial garden where they had plaques, you know, in remembrance of different people who had died and who were involved in the church. And you walk, I was walking through the garden. It was quiet and peaceful. Walking through the garden, I noticed the plaques. Most of the dates that they had written on there were 1917 to 2001, 1946 to 2014. But then I came to this little section, and it was, uh, the dates were like uh, 2004 to 2008, 2012 to 2019. Is there any greater fear that you have as a parent? Is there any greater sorrow that you could experience? Some of you have experienced. Is there any greater sorrow that you could experience than the death of a child? My, my friend, who is a pastor of a church uh, in another place, he said the hardest day he's ever had in pastoral ministry over 30-some years was the day that he 
He had to go to the hospital with a family whose little boy had been in a car accident along with them. The rest of the family was fine. The little boy had hit his head and he had bleeding in his brain. And the mother held that child, you know, till the wee hours of the morning, midnight, one o'clock. Doctor said apparently the child died sometime in that time frame when she just kept holding him until eight o'clock in the morning. Imagine those seven hours. You feel this woman struggle, don't you? I mean, eternally, the, the heartache that comes with it. And the, and the question that, of course, comes into our minds immediately when we think about that, like, come on, God. <laughs> it's a baby. It's a child. He's a young man. Come on. He's not lived his full life yet. What are you doing? You promised to give this child to this woman, and then you take him away. You can feel that, can't you? Surely these questions are arising in her mind. And yet the author doesn't tell us about anything going on in her mind. Instead, the author says she acted. Verse 21, she, she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, then shut the door and went out. She called her husband and said, please send me one of the servants and a donkey so I can go to the man of God quickly and return. And her husband, well, why would you go to him today? It's like a Wednesday. He apparently doesn't know yet. He asks, it's not the new moon or the Sabbath. Like, it's not a festival or that particular day in the week that you would go and visit the man of God. So I don't get it. What are you doing? She doesn't tell him. She said, that's all right. Is it all right? She saddled the donkey and said to her servant, lead on. Don't slow down for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. It's about a 27-kilometer journey on the back of a donkey. It's like here from, from here in Abbasur to Walnut Grove, basically, on the back of a donkey. And what she says to her, her servant is basically the, the word lead on there is translated in other versions, urge the animal on. Like, don't stop for anything. One of our pastors here uh, used to lead uh, mission trips down to Mexico, and they'd drive along the west coast of North America there to get down to Mexico. And he'd leave here. He would say to all the kids in the van, all right, so here's the deal. I got two rules. Number one, you need to respect one another. And number two, this van stops when I want it to stop. So when I have to go to the bathroom, that's when we're stopping. And you get your chance. But if you have to go between that time, I don't know what you're going to do. You might want to get a bottle, a jar. I don't know what you're going to do here. So that's, that's what's happening. We're not stopping for anything. That's basically what she says to the servant. Servant, don't stop for anything. Don't, if I whine about how uncomfortable, just keep going. Lead on. Verse 25, the last part of it, when, when he saw her in the distance, the man of God said to his servant Gehazi, look, there's the Shunammite on a Wednesday. Run to meet her and ask her, are you, are you all right? Is your husband all right? Is your child all right? What do you expect her to say when... The servant comes to her, are you okay? Is your son okay? No! None of us are okay. But instead she says, everything's all right, she said. In other words, I don't want to talk to you. Gehazi, I want to talk to the man of God. When she reached the man of God at the mountain, she took hold of his feet. That's a very shameful thing to do, to run, to dive at someone's feet in that, in that particular culture. You just don't do it. It's kind of a slave's position. Gehazi came over and tried to push her away, you know, show some decorum. 
But the man of God said, leave her alone. She's, she's in bitter distress, but the Lord has hidden it from me and not told me why. And then she tells him why. Did I ask you for a son? Didn't, didn't I tell you don't raise up my home? Didn't I tell you? It's a cry of sorrow and of blame. I was minding my own business. I didn't ask for this. And you came along and gave it, and now it's gone. You ever had that feeling? You ever cried out to God? I don't get it, God. I don't get it. I don't get it. Verse 29, Elisha said to Gehazi, all right, tuck your cloak into your belt. Take my staff in your hand and run. Don't greet anyone you meet, and if anyone greets you, do not answer. I actually say that to my wife when we leave church every week, right? <laughs> don't, don't greet anyone you meet, and if anyone greets you, do not answer. Lay my staff on the boy's face. But the child's mother said, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So he got up and followed her. And Gehazi's supposed to go and take this, this staff. And Elijah's like, yeah, surely the, the power of God can be placed in this staff. So Gehazi, run ahead. And the woman's like, yeah, I'm not going with the staff, Elisha. I'm going with you. <laughs> right? You're the one that God is working through. You need to come. So, all right, fine. Gehazi, verse 31, went on ahead and laid the staff on the boy's face, but there was no sound or response. So Gehazi went back to meet Elisha and told him, boy, didn't awaken. I don't know what you're going to do. When Elisha reached the house, there was the boy lying dead on his couch. He went in, shut the door on the two of them, and he prayed to the Lord. And then he got on the bed and he lay on the boy, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands. Picture that, right? He's on his knees probably at the feet of the boy and he just drops on top of the kid. Hands to hands, you know, arms to arms, nose to nose, eyes to eyes, mouth to mouth. Life on top of death. Literally breathing into the child. As he stretched himself out on him, the body, boy's body grew warm. And Elisha turned away, and he walked back and forth in the room. You wonder what he's saying there. Come on, God. 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 And then he got on the bed again and, and stretched out on him once more. The boy sneezed seven times. They used to believe in those days, but by sneezing, you were expelling the sickness out of you. So by sneezing and doing it seven times, which is the number of completion, in other words, all of the sickness left. Elisha summoned Gehazi and said, call the Shunammite, and he did. And when she came, he said, take your son. And she came in and she fell at his feet and bowed to the ground. And then she took her son and went out. Cool story, right? All right, so what do we learn from it? Uh, I've got three applications. What I want to do is I want to say that there's, um, there's different things that we learn depending on which character we look at in this story. So I want, I want to look, look at what, what do we learn from the Shunammite woman, uh, what do we look, learn from Elisha, and finally, what do we learn from the boy? Shunammite woman, Elisha, and the boy. So the Shunammite woman, what do we learn from her? Well, I'll say it this way. Um, run toward God and not away from him even when the bottom drops out. The answers to the questions that you and I have, the peace that we so desperately want when the bottom drops out, are found toward God and not away from him. 
The way that you um, usually interpret or understand a story, so like a film or a, a, a book or any kind of narrative, the way that you understand a story is usually through what we call characterization. And that means um, what happens to the characters in the story from the front of the story to the end of the story. So if you want to know what the director or what the writer is trying to teach, what morals, what's the point that they're trying to get at in the story, you say, what does the... What do the characters look like at the beginning, and then what do they look like at the end? If at the beginning they're a real jerk, and at the end, you know, like a prince who is showing kindness to everyone, right? So Scrooge, what's the point? Don't be like Scrooge at the beginning, be like him at the end, right? And sometimes it goes the other way. Sometimes he's a real good guy at the beginning and becomes a horrible person at the end. Some of you can think about TV shows, Walter Wyatt type, people like that who get really bad along the way. What's the author trying to say of the story? It's a warning. It's a tragedy. This is what could happen to you if you start mixing meth in your RV or whatever. So here's the question. What happens, or what's the difference, between the woman at the beginning of the story and at the end? Not much. Right? It's not like she becomes faithful. At the front end, she calls this guy the man of God. She's on board with him. She builds a little house for him on the top of their, on top of their house. He's welcome all the time, so much so that he wants to repay them he, she gets this child. When the child even dies, she runs to the man of God, down at his feet, clutching his feet, seeking help. He shows up back at the house. He gets in the room. He lays on the child, and she ends clutching his feet in worship. So in the darkness, she clutches his feet, and in the joy and light, she clutches his feet. The point is, the woman's commitment to Elisha and the God he represents never wavers, even amidst great heartache, both in joy and in sorrow, she runs toward God and his prophet. It's not usually the way that we handle it, especially in the sorrow. Um, I want you to imagine for a minute that I uh, sell you a car. it's cheap. It's a cheap car. Uh, but you come along and you do the Mennonite thing and say, I want it cheaper. Okay, fine. I'll, I'll sell it to you cheaper. I sell it to you cheaper. And you're excited, right? You've got a cheap car and you drive away. <laughs> Sucker to, you know, pastors are so easy to get something over. I'm fine. You all drive away. And next day you say, I'm going to drive to Chilliwack, you know, see the beautiful Chilliwack. And so they, you drive out there and you, and you go and you see the sights in Chilliwack and you're having a great time. And then somewhere along the road in Chilliwack, the transmission in the car drops out of the bottom. By the way, I don't know what a transmission is, but I've heard it can drop out of the bottom of the car. So that happens. This transmission, boom, out of the bottom of the car. And the car rolls to a halt. And you look back and like half of the car is still on the ground. So you get the tow truck and you call the people, you get your mechanic friend to come over and have a look at it. He says, yeah, this thing was a piece of junk. When, you, when, you, when did you get it? Yesterday. Who'd you get it from? <laughs> the pastor. <laughs> you should call him. Okay, so you call me on the phone and you say, hey man, the transmission fell out. Surely you knew the transmission was bad. And I say, uh-huh. 
Well, why didn't you tell me that? <laughs> Buyer beware, right? As is. Well, how, how could you do that? That's terrible. And we have this big argument on the phone, and maybe you seek legal means in order to get me to, to back off. None of it works. And then like seven weeks later, you're in Costco, and I'm in Costco, and we're walking toward each other. What do you do? And the answer is you go to the far wings of Costco. The only people walking down the far wings of Costco are people who don't want to see anybody. People who've got issues with the people that they saw. Oh, man, we got to go over here. I didn't know they had uh, dishwashers, you know? <laughs> That's the way that we handle stuff. Listen, if, if, if the girl breaks up with you, if the guy breaks up with you, the next day, the next three days, you know what you don't do? You see them across the room. How's it going? That's not what happens. You see them in the room and you're like, I got to get, get out of here. Get out of here. We, we freeze people out who we think have wronged us. And so it is with God. I don't like what you've done in my life, God, so I'm going this way and you can go that way. Get lost. Shun. The problem, of course, is that the answers to the problem that you have, the answers and the peace that you need, are not found away from him. They're always found toward him. See, God's different than me. I can, I can be vindictive and mean, and I can lie to you about some, some things like my car and how good it is. I can pull one over on you. I'm that kind of person. But is God that kind of person? Does God ever wrong people? Can he wrong them? By his very nature, wouldn't he be breaking something true about his character and therefore not be the true God? If he wronged you in some way, yeah, you might not get it. You might not see exactly what he's doing at the time, but he cannot wrong you. He said so. He's always trustworthy, even when it doesn't look like it. And so as a result, you and I should, when things go wrong, the first thing we should do is run. We, we cling to his feet in the joy, and we run, and we cling to his feet in the sorrow, and we say to God, what are you doing? Well, I would never do that. That seems really, you know, disrespectful and blasphemous. Okay, Psalm 13. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer. Lord, my God, give light to my eyes or I'll sleep in death and my enemy will say I've overcome and my foes will rejoice when I fall. Where are you? But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. And so many of us are facing so many challenges. And we have basically shunned God and gone the other way. We show up at church, but it's usually at, still with a grudge. But I, I got to tell you, the answers that you seek and the peace that you so desperately want are found at his feet. Not on your own. So run to him. Complain to him. He can handle it. Second, what do we learn from Elisha? Well, this. Uh, repeated, passionate, and audacious prayer honors the Lord. Repeated, passionate, and audacious prayer honors the Lord. 
Listen, if, if, if uh, this woman had come to me in my office and said to me, oh my goodness, my child had died, I would put my hand on her shoulder and say something like, oh, the mystery is of God and I don't know why and what's happened and let me, let me pray for you. Oh, comfort my dear sister, be kind to her. And those are all good things, right? All good things. I probably wouldn't have said, okay, let's go see the child and see if we can raise him from the dead. But Elisha does. That's an audacious prayer. That's a remarkable prayer. And it's an answer to that audacious prayer that this boy lives. My son Micah um, and his brother Ethan, my oldest son Ethan, my second son Micah, when they were little, uh, we went on a holiday and we had a free timeshare in the Newport Beach area of California. Newport Beach is like the swanky, like expensive area of, of Southern California. And so uh, you can drive along the Pacific Coast Highway there and you can go right by a, a Ferrari dealership attached to a Maserati dealership. So we were driving, you know, next to, the, you know, to these dealerships and my son Micah pins his face to the window and says, we got to go there. Okay. So I pulled over, parked on the street and I walked in. I don't know if you noticed this, I don't dress very well. And so like, and when I'm not here, I dress worse than that, right? So... So I was wearing a pair of like grotty shorts and like some sandals and a t-shirt. And I had him shave for a few days and I walked in to this place and this guy in a, a suit, you know, it's almost a tux, walked over to me. Uh, can I help you? <laughs> I said, yeah, I was wondering if uh, my kids could sit in one of the cars. <sighs> he said, <laughs> I said, well, there's, there's nobody here, right? So could they? Fine, just be careful of what you touch, you know? Like, so the boys get in the car, and one of them's behind the wheel. It's got these, I have these pictures of them in the Ferrari dealership in the car of this, in, in this Ferrari. They're there for a couple minutes, and then we get out, you know, wipe, wipe their hands off, you know, all off of everything, and we leave the place, and we're walking back toward our, you know, Chevy rental car there, and my son Micah looks at me, he says, Dad, we totally need to get one of those. Now, why does he say that to me? Well, because he has not come yet to the point to realize that his father has significant limits when it comes to buying cars, right? Like, I, from his point of view at this, at this present moment, my dad can do anything, right? We have a Toyota. Surely you can get a Ferrari, right? But as he grows up, as you start learning your father's limits, you start realizing, oh, so you don't have money. Oh, you're not that smart. Oh, okay, so... In, Eventually, you stop asking some things because you just know that he can't do it, right? <laughs> so what limits does God have? Like, will you ever get to a point where you grow up and think, he can't do that? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Do you pray like that? If you look into your prayer, and would you put the word audacious over it? Because I've been to a lot of prayer meetings. You know what it usually sounds like? Lord, help me have a better feeling in my hip. and help. That's fine. That's fine. But really? Nothing bigger? Nothing grander? John Knox was a, was a Protestant reformer from Scotland. So 16th century, this guy bought into the Protestant Reformation. And in those days, the king or queen of England would go back and forth between a Protestant and a Catholic. When the Catholics were in power, the Protestant reformers were on the run. 
John Knox was constantly on the run, especially from Mary, Queen of Scots, who wanted to kill him. But she couldn't. This man, John Knox, was known for being a man of prayer, deep, bold prayer. Mary, Queen of Scots, at one point said this. She said, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. He used to say, one man with God is always a majority. And he's most known for this prayer. God, give me Scotland or I'll die. Give me Scotland or I'll die. Do you know what God did? Do you know what God did? He gave him Scotland. He did. You go to Scotland today and you walk around and you see any Presbyterian church. To be honest with you, you see any churches, most of them are there because John Knox prayed. Give me Scotland. What is it James says? You do not have because you do not ask. Finally, from the boy, uh, what do we learn from, from this little boy? Well, what you have at the end of this is a man sent from God who comes into a room full of death. He lays on top of this dead boy and he breathes in him the breath of life. Literally, the breath of Elisha goes into the boy and life springs up. Does this sound like anything else in the Bible to you? Like a, a man sent from God who comes in and brings life to the dead? Doesn't this sound like Jesus to you? That basically, what this story really is is a faint shadow of what comes to full color later on when Jesus comes and he comes to bring life out of death. Uh, Ephesians 2 as for you, you are dead in your transgressions and sins. But verse 4, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we are dead in transgression. The story of the Bible is of a God who stoops down to breathe life into the dead. You and I are dead. You know that, right? It occurs to me that Honestly, some people come to church and they sit here and they listen to the sermons. I know a lot of people have been here for a year. Oh, I've been here six months or whatever. I'm coming back to church. I've never been to church or anything like that. Can I just summarize the entirety of the Bible in just one second? Jesus comes to bring new life to dead people like you and me. So he wants to breathe in you the life that he comes to give. He died on a cross in your place. He wants to grant you the life that he's earned but you have to admit that you're dead. You have to admit that the things you put your hands to just turn out wrong. That you fail all sorts of places. That's the qualification. Have you ever done that? Have you ever just bent your knee down before God and said, I, I need the breath of life? You know, the God who's doing all this stuff in this book wants to do this stuff in you. Just need to admit your death and receive his life. So listen, what I want to do is I want to finish by praying. And in the middle of my prayer, I'm just going to give you an opportunity to silently pray to God. A prayer of repentance, of submission, uh, of invitation to let the light of Christ come and shine in your dark, dead soul. Okay? So let's pray together. Father, I am so deeply thankful for uh, these stories in the Old Testament. I'm thankful that they're true. And I'm thankful, Father, that you are the God who brings 
the dead to life. Father, we know ultimately that we, we are dead in our transgressions and sins. We have wronged you in so many ways, Father, and it has earned for us eternal death. And yet, Jesus has come to breathe that life into us. And he stands now at the door and he knocks. And anyone who opens that door, he will come and eat with them. So I pray, Lord that in this particular moment, you're in, by your spirit, would be moving in the hearts of people who are here. They know who they are. I'm sure, right now, the feelings are there and the spirit has prompted them. So God, I pray in this moment then that they will repeat these words and you can repeat these in your mind after me. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I need your life. I can't do this. I can't do this life. I can't do it on my own. I need you to come and take over. So, Lord, we thank you that you answer every prayer of every repentant heart, and ultimately, Father, those who want Jesus can have him, and I pray, Father, that you would stir in all of us a desire for him more and more, and would you shed your light into our darkness day after day after day, we pray in Jesus' good name, amen.